I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ines Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. As usual, we have a jam-packed show for you today covering a variety of topics. We're going to start with Josh, who's doing a little post-modern, post post-mortem post uh, it is sort of a post-modern post-mortem uh but a post-mortem on the speakership fight that happened we're glad to have josh back here and congratulate him on his wonderful news his engagement congratulations josh we're so glad to have you back thank you emily of course uh you were in israel you were traveling so i'm sure we'll have uh, a little snippet at least of of your time abroad then we're going to move over to inez who is going to talk to us about south dakota and big trans the title i'm supposed to be reading here is how big trans conquered south dakota but big trans sounds like the name of a drag queen so i had to get a little bit more specific <laughs> uh, then we're going to move over to ben who's going to talk to us about the weaponization of the uh, federal government committee um to look into intelligence abuses of power and we're all sort of eagerly awaiting to see how that unfolds and i'm going to talk about president biden's trip to the border his trip to mexico his trip to el paso so let me start by kicking it over to uh, the newly engaged josh hammer <laughs> well it is great to be back emily thank you so much for the kind words um i, I guess a couple of very quick housekeeping notes right off the bat because i didn't miss like two to three episodes here so i was away for two and a half weeks or so not just in israel but also in the uae and egypt did like a little Middle East swings. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come back to that towards the end with some substantive commentary based on like the geopolitics and all of that. But I am engaged, so uh, thank you again for that. Um, I also, on a totally unrelated housekeeping note, I missed Rachel Bovard's sign off. Uh, my dear friend, our dear friend Rachel Bovard. So, you know, this podcast is not going to be the same without you, Rachel. But uh, you know, onwards and upwards, and maybe somewhere down the line, we will rekindle the Natcon Squad OG relationship. I guess we shall see. But. Let's turn to the actual topic of the day. So I, I was kind of abroad, speaking of my trip, when this whole speaker fight really started picking up steam. I think when I landed like two Wednesday nights ago, by the time this podcast is released, we were like five or six ballots in or so. But my column, nonetheless, last week, I had seen more than enough that I felt equipped to comment on the various fights and, and what where the lines were drawn and some key takeaways and lessons and all of that so, uh, you know, uh, this is our first episode since the fight finished. So I guess if you've been sleeping under a rock, the way this unfolded is that Kevin McCarthy ended up winning on a very dramatic 15th ballot. So uh, I think it was 13 or 14 of the 20 holdouts basically ended up switching to McCarthy after securing various very meaningful concessions that we can get into um, in the discussion here after I think it was the 12th or 13th ballot is when it was when um that that uh, Chip Roy led crew switched to Kevin McCarthy, and ultimately the way this finally went down, that the final holdouts, Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, and so forth, just voted present, so they wouldn't affirmatively vote for McCarthy. They were just kind of lowering the denominator, so he basically snuck by. But he did manage to sneak by by giving away the farm. I mean, I would argue that Kevin McCarthy, in the process of this, basically humiliated himself, if not the entire position of the Speaker of the House. Now, from a conservative perspective, that's a good thing, because I don't particularly trust Kevin McCarthy. I have never trusted Kevin McCarthy. He has always been kind of just about Kevin McCarthy, just about his own power, his own kind of quid pro quos, horse trading, his own kind of K Street lobbying and his connections and all of that. So from a conservative perspective, 
the fact that there's, you know, there's a restoration now of a single member motion to vacate the chair. Another very meaningful concession, I think, is the fact that we have, um, you know, a contractual agreement now uh, where the actual enforcement mechanism is a single member motion to vacate, single member motion to vacate. But we have now a contractual agreement where there will be 12 distinct appropriations packages to actually fund the government. So no more kind of $1.7 trillion you know, lame duck Congress omnibus surprises. I, I guess theoretically it could happen, but that that would violate the agreement. And again, there is this you know easily enforceable mechanism that I feel pretty confident at least Chip Roy, if no one else, would be very quick to utilize that enforcement mechanism. Uh, House Freedom Caucus members were able to attain, I think, three of the nine seats on the very influential Rules Committee. So various other concessions as well. And you guys can kind of comment on that if you want to. Just in, in my final remaining minutes here before I throw it open, I want to talk about the losers because the winners, I think, are conservatives here. But there are various losers from this fight as well. First and foremost is Kevin McCarthy, who, again, I think, yet again showed what any astute political observer would know, which is that he's all about himself and that he doesn't particularly care about anything other than just sheer you know, vocational advancement up the ladder. He proved that by weakening the position of the power or weakening the power of the speakership as much as he did. Um, I think also egg on the face, frankly, of President Donald Trump. I've seen some folks in kind of Trump world inner circle trying to spin this as a big win for Trump because at the very end, Marjorie Taylor Greene got him on the phone. Uh, I, I think that's, frankly, just Monday morning quarterbacking, a bit of nonsense to be just very candid here. Uh, President Trump endorsed McCarthy before any of these balloting started, and then he doubled down on that vociferously after the third ballot. It wasn't until the 15th ballot when, when Kevin McCarthy won. And between ballots three and 15, you saw some of the Trumpiest members of the entire House Republican caucus, folks like Matt Gates who literally went on TV and said, well, you know what? If President Trump messed up in any way, he was on personnel. So he's maybe not the best person to trust here. Lauren Boebert went so far as to tell Trump to instruct McCarthy to withdraw. So I don't think Trump comes out of this looking any more powerful than he did beforehand, to put it mildly. Um, final thing is I think there's, and I, you know, my column was partially about this, and Drew White had a fantastic column on this for Newsweek that we published earlier this week. I think a lot of establishment-friendly conservative commentators quite candidly came away from this looking not particularly good. And, you know, I think we all know who we're talking about here. Happy to kind of get into the the name blames if we really want to, but I'm going to avoid that for the time being there. But, I, you know, I guess on that note, I'll throw it open to you guys. Do you guys agree with my kind of top line takeaways or do you see it a little differently? One thing I'll say is I think it was, um, I, I definitely agree with the top line takeaway. And I think though it, it still wasn't this like perfect clear cut litmus test at the beginning, though, as the week wore on, and it was clear that people like Chip Roy had read the chips, not no pun intended, but like they had figured out what they could bargain with better than most people on the outside. Um, I think they knew they had McCarthy backed into a corner because there were no other viable options that could be consensus points. So you can't bring in Steve Scalise. You sure as hell can't bring in Fred Upton. Um, and there's just Jim Jordan is not going to happen because then you lose the other folks. So they knew McCarthy needed them more than they needed him. Um, and that was just more obvious, I think, to people who were negotiating behind closed doors than it was on the outside. Um, so uh, while I think the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Jim Jordans and Ken Bucks of the world had very good reasons for sticking with McCarthy. Um, and I think, you know, there's some other folks that were, uh, as I wrote in my piece, goofball 
balls um, on the, the other side of it, pushing and pushing and pushing. I think this was a real winner for Chip Roy. Um, it, Chip Roy and other folks emerged from that week looking like they are, are serious negotiators. Um, they understand their power and they want to wield it wisely um, against the ballooning federal government. It's like sort of the last bastion uh, or the last stand almost. And I think they understand the, the sort of timeliness, the desperation that the country is in. Um, and so a big win. I think it was a huge win um, because you, when do you ever get the House to agree to doing single subject bills? 72 hour reading periods. These are like populist measures, like Tea Party fever dream stuff <laughs> that actually happen in the House of Representatives. Maybe it'll go away in two years. Maybe the one person motion to vacate will be an abject disaster. Um, but it's a it's a great experiment that is well worth ha doing right now as all of the other strategies have failed and doubling down on them would be a, a big mistake. Yeah, um, I, I changed my mind after recording on this as it was starting to happen last week with you guys. Um, I think initially I was thinking it much more like who's going to replace McCarthy? Is the, the person who replaces McCarthy any better? Um, most of the, the floated possibilities were not. So I was kind of like, eh, you know, what is this really going to do? And I think that was really the, the wrong way of looking at it because you, you can you can change the leadership dynamic in the Republican Party one of two ways. The most obvious one is the one I was thinking of, which is swapping out its leaders. Um, and in some cases that might be necessary, but there is another way you can change that dynamic and that's by cutting their power to lead um, and, and changing sort of who in this case in the House has the ability um, and more leverage over what the agenda of Republicans in Congress actually ends up being. And so for that reason, I think this was a very successful rebellion. I, I always like to see a pound of flesh extracted from leadership. They deserve it. Um, but also, you know, some of these substantive changes going forward really does empower. And frankly, it, it, I think it, income, it's, it actually behooves us to, to hold um, our members collectively much more accountable because now they can't hide behind a lot of these these measures and that's why i do think these these um changes are so substantive this is going to force a lot more votes as far as i understand it and so we're going to actually be able to see where some of these folks actually stand as opposed to hiding behind well this has to pass it's 1.7 trillion or the government shuts down um yeah it has some bad stuff in it but you know there's some necessary stuff in it too so what did you want me to do vote against it i think that accountability might end up being much more important uh in the long run so I have to say, I was hoping that we would have over 133 ballots and break the record. So I was sad to see it end at 15. But that said, what was achieved through those 15, I think, was seminal for conservatives. Uh, this was a perfect representation of conservatives actually wielding outsized power relative to their numbers. This was a silver lining of the small majority in the House. Let's not forget, if there had been a larger majority, these concessions would have never been granted. And I think one of the things that was quite revealing about this episode, you know, Josh touched on the media a bit, is just how uniform the media was, for the most part, right and left in the narrative that you know, these were terrorists who were holding up the process and holding the country hostage and the like. And it just struck me as such, as someone who's at a remove from Washington, D.C., I think, thankfully, in a case like this, so disingenuous, but maybe from the perspective of those acting hysterically about this, actually genuine. The utter gall that these 20 conservatives would have to actually negotiate over basic things like taking time to read bills or the fact that all the power shouldn't be concentrated in the Speaker of the House or that maybe conservatives should get bigger representation on significant committees within that House. 
Um, I, I know there are some conservatives who I've seen have raised objections in terms of some of the in the rules package, which is quite vital regarding oversight powers. Like, for example, I believe the speaker can still ultimately shoot down subpoena requests individually, which has hampered conservative efforts in the past. And I think that still remains. But nevertheless, had there not been this effort by these purported, you know, quote unquote, holdouts, we would have never achieved these gains. And I think these gains are beneficial to the American people. They're beneficial to have regular order and actual deliberation in the House. And, and that's a huge victory that should be cherished in a, in a very difficult time. So the final thing that I'll say, and then let's toss it over to Inez for our next segment here. The other interesting dynamic that I think happened here was this was one of the first kind of intra-Republican, intra-conservative fights that we've had that was not about Trump. So you know, during the Trump era, it was kind of like Trump versus never Trump. This was kind of a almost like a pre-2016 style fight of, of like conservatives versus the establishment. It's kind of like a binary. It's, just, it's, it's a paradigm. It's a dynamic that just totally disappeared. Very interesting that we saw a return to that. Maybe we'll come back to that in final thoughts. But for now, let's toss it over to Inez for our next segment. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Josh, by the way. Um, so for my segment, I want to focus on uh, something that was released last week, a piece of reporting by Nate Hockman over at National Review that I think got a ton of attention, rightly so, but uh, deserves, I think, more analysis. Uh, so it's it's a really great look at uh, into the lobbying uh, dynamics within the South Dakota legislature and how socially conservative bills get killed um, by Republicans in a deep red state. And I think it, this this uh, story has so much resonance outside of the state of South Dakota because it really is a story of how big business uh, still has so much purchase over Republicans um, and, and uh, can effectively basically short circuit uh, a very popular socially conservative agenda in states where the actual specifics of that agenda are not in controversy at all. They're overwhelmingly popular. Um, so he, Nate basically lays out how uh, Christy Noem's office um, and, and as well as the legislature itself uh, are, are bowing to a uh, entity called Sanford Health. Uh, it is the it is a very large employer. This is a company, a health company that is a very large employer in South Dakota um, and has basically behind the scenes killed all kinds of legislation, starting with um, a ban on on males and in, in women's sports uh, that that ultimately went back to the governor to sign after she vetoed it. Um, but but all kinds of, of socially conservative legislation. So for example, conscience rights for medical practitioners who objected to performing abortion and gender transition, um, a law banning puberty blockers and sex reassignment surgery for children under 16, um, a whole bunch of other bills, which by the way, directly conflict with Sanford's business interests. They're making quite a lot of money performing these procedures, right? Um, so it's it's not that the this company or that Governor Nome, for example, never went against this company. She cited a few instances where she did, uh, but overwhelmingly, both in the legislature and the governor's office, it is really, really difficult uh, for a small state like South Dakota uh, to actually buck this kind of uh, corporate power and threat uh, of woke capital. This is a dynamic that cannot continue in the Republican Party uh, if we're to get anywhere. Um, again, so actually, I, I really can't stand Chrissy Noem for all kinds of reasons, this primary uh, among them, but um, I do want to give her at least this much uh, sort of, um, I guess, <laughs> a bit of a reprieve on this. I think it's very difficult for a small state 
uh, to really seriously buck business interests. And when those business interests are not just lobbying for, you know, sort of goodies on the tax code, but they're directly lobbying and threatening essentially capital strikes uh, against small states on the basis of social issues, it really, really behooves red states to actually bind together on issues like this and provide some kind of collective power uh, behind those kinds of pushbacks. Because it is frankly easier for a state like Florida um, to push back against Disney as it is than it is for a state like South Dakota, because um, Florida is very big. It has a very big economy. It's very, um, you know, sort of business friendly climate. Lots of businesses want to be um, in Florida. If you're a small state and you have a smaller economy, you're much more dependent. But at the end of the day, um, this is the kind of dynamic that just just cannot continue in the Republican Party. I highly recommend this reporting because this is happening in red state legislatures all around the country on a whole host of social issues. This is a, a large reason why um, I think voters feel so incredibly frustrated when there's something that's popular, not just with the right, by the way, but with independents and even some Democrats. Issues like you know, uh, surgically mutilating minors uh, who, who uh, have a delusion about being the opposite sex. These are 75, 80% issues, maybe even 85% issues for, um, for the right. And the reason that it's so difficult to enact them even in red legislatures is dynamics like this behind the scenes. And every state has a Sanford, right? Every state has a, a cabal of essentially woke capital businesses that are now heavily using um, that, that leverage. Um, and as much as I, I like what Ron DeSantis has been doing to push back on this, I do think it's probably necessary for all red states to sort of one, expose this dynamic, and two, use some kind of collective power to push back on this because uh, small states, small red states are probably going to get run over effectively by this by this dynamic. So with that, I'll, I'll throw it out to, uh, to the rest of the, the crew. So Nate did a fantastic job with this article. It was a really well-researched, well-reported article. One thing that Nate Hockman also does, which is really good, if, he, if for those of you who are less familiar with his work, he does these prolific tweet threads when he writes an article that are just extremely easy and good to follow. It kind of just makes your job a lot easier as a, as a news consumer. I probably should do the same thing, to be honest with you, although I'm not a reporter, but I guess it's neither here nor there. Anyway, to get back to the substance of, of what was going on here, you know, I, I think Inez analyzes very well. I mean, a lot of these smaller states are, by definition, going to be disproportionately more prone to finality, to lobbying, to special interests of this nature. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it's counterintuitive in a sense, because South Dakota, based on the polling, uh, you know, uh, Nate cited this poll in his, in his tweet thread, I think, where he was like, uh, it was a pure Gallup poll, whatever, it was like asking the citizens of each state to identify as conservative, moderate, liberal. I think South Dakota was like literally like the second or third most conservative state. So it's a bit of a paradox, but because it's such a small and rural and sparse state, if you have one private organization like Sanford that is able to accumulate this much power, it could be, could be disproportionately influential. That is not to exculpate, by the way, Christy Nome or South Dakota Republicans who have consistently dropped the ball on a number of these issues. I think Christy Nome has effectively done a mea culpa on the transgender sports issue, but she only did so after conservative media basically tore her a new rear end, um, I guess would be the polite way of saying it. So she has shown herself um, capable of kind of licking her finger and kind of putting it out there to see which way conservative media is blowing. Uh, another aspect of the story that I thought was uh, interesting, I guess you would say, is that Christy Nome's uh, combative spokesperson, a gentleman by the name of Ian Fury, 
uh, just unloaded on, on, on Nate Hockman when Nate asked for a formal comment about the article that he was writing. And he unloaded on Governor DeSantis, even though Governor DeSantis had nothing whatsoever to do with this article. And he and, and Ian Fury unloaded on him on an unrelated issue, talking about the abortion issue and the Dobbs Supreme Court case. And it was really just utterly bizarre. Um, and you know, this is now public now. Numerous articles have been written about it. But I remember like when Nate first texted me about this, I like, couldn't even believe my own eyes. I mean, like very, very, very weird. Um, so I say that only to note that it seems like the 2024 sweepstakes stuff is already starting. I, I would speculate based on that exchange from Ian Fury that Christy Nome was trying to position herself as uh, President Trump's vice presidential running mate would be my best guess. But it was a very bizarre episode. And I thought it was worth flagging. She also did a similar thing at CPAC um, last year where she intentionally mentioned like closing beaches um, in a way that was seemed to be a pretty uh, veiled uh, stab at DeSantis. And Ian did something similar when the trans story first broke and just unloaded on conservative media, directly unloaded on conservative media, which had uh, really gone to bat for Gnome um, at a time when the mainstream media was attacking her. The so-called mainstream media was attacking her. So uh, I think that's going to be an ongoing pro problem for Gnome. But, uh, you know, that's why, to Inez's point, which is really, really important, we hear about this after the norms have sort of already been changed, after the Sanford Health people have already gotten into the government, after they have weighed in on numerous bills that favor Sanford over maybe what's what's right for the state. We don't know that. Obviously, I'm sure in a lot of cases there are good arguments and in, in favor of you know business and whatever it is. Um, but we hear about this afterwards, and and that means um, that there was probably an opportunity for whatever politician or their staff or political staff in any given state to draw a red line um, before this became a public problem uh, to to gather everyone and say, listen, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> before it even becomes a, a public tug of war to say the red line here is like you trying to import Brooklyn ideology um, to South Dakota or Indiana or North Carolina has this happen as has happened over the last you know, several years. And it doesn't mean that their jobs are easy because this is getting to them after Hollywood and the media have used their incredible might to change these norms and to uh, create those pressures to begin with. It doesn't mean that it's easy. Um, it mean like it is very hard because business people will come to you with these arguments about jobs and uh, incomes and people's livelihoods um but you know obviously there have to be spines of steel and i hope the fact that gnome has sort of shifted on this issue that nate at national review is getting the bandwidth to do a lot of dogged reporting on this um and and others are as well i hope that means that uh children are going to increasingly be protected from this ideology but inez i think you just i, I would just double down on everything you said because I, I think it was important and really well said yeah a few just quick observations one a, a question but sort of a rhetor rhetorical one is what is the conservative parallel to this like i can't think of any business or parallel cause that conservatives have taken up and then they're able to kind of corrode the establishment within a given state and take it over particularly a state that's antithetical it would be like pro second amendment groups via a company somehow completely shifting the the laws on guns within a place like new york or massachusetts or california it'd be unthinkable essentially now 
To be fair, South Dakota, as we've discussed, does have some unique conditions that make it, you know, it's hard to think of a parallel of sort of a, a single company town, so to speak, where this dynamic could play out. But the broader dynamic of having these corporations that lead essentially hydra-headed movements with front activist groups that they're backing in order to launder positions and take over from within, that is perfectly uh, on brand for how the progressive left dominates across a whole slew of issues. And I think it's worth noting, they are doing this on basically every single progressive agenda item in every single state all the time, perpetually. And it feels as if we're constantly on the defensive. At some point, we have to get to the offensive. And sometimes, you know, we're about to enter the NFL playoffs. So that's where my mind is right now. Sometimes the, the best defense is a great offense. And, and we need to think much more creatively, I think, about how we don't necessarily mimic the way that the left operates because we're probably not going to beat them at their own game but we ought to think of ways to aggressively use power where we have it as well and that goes beyond political power even though we should wield it of course where we can uh, on that note i guess we can transition back to myself here no pun intended on the transition point and maybe i'll return to final thoughts on that to just ask the question why is it that elites are so fixated on the trans issue itself maybe we can get into that in a bit but I'll talk about uh, perhaps a more optimistic subject, I guess, which is the subject that I always return to on this show, the hyper-politicization and weaponization of the national security and law enforcement apparatus. And thankfully, one of the so-called concessions that Kevin McCarthy agreed to for the speakership was to launch a church-style, at least it's been claimed to be a church-style subcommittee under the House Judiciary Committee chaired by the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, on the weaponization of the federal government. And if you look at the founding resolution for this subcommittee, it basically gives that subcommittee carte blanche to pursue civil rights violations writ large, both in terms of unlawful and unethical behavior across the full scope of the executive branch. It doesn't specifically say just FBI, just DOJ, but actually executive agencies, their collusion with entities outside the government and across the full array of civil liberties violations that they've engaged in. So theoretically, this could encompass about anything under the sun. It's also worth noting in the, the resolution that it calls for the ability to provide oversight over pending criminal investigations as well. So that points to activities that are going on right this instant. So obviously, you know, I'm a huge proponent of a church style committee. I've written about it at length in the past. And there's great promise and a great opportunity here to be seized if the committee can seize it. Um, so I would just raise, I guess, a few things. And I'm, I'm writing a, a long form piece on this. It'll probably be out maybe next week, maybe end of this week around when this episode comes out. But there are some critical questions that have to be thought through in connection with this exercise. First of all, it has myriad constraints that it is facing, and the enemies of this committee will try to exploit them to the fullest extent, namely including the fact that there's finite time, finite resources, that this is, of course, concerning secretive and sensitive areas of the federal government. So there's going to be stonewalling, subterfuge, game playing with redactions, and the like. And if this committee actually does what it promises to do, it's going to find itself up against the entirety of the deep state, the Democrat Party, much of the Republican Party, and the corporate media, just for starters. So there's a whole slew of headwinds facing this committee to the extent it takes on the behemoth 
the tip of the spear of ruling class power in the national security and law enforcement apparatus. And given those constraints, I think a few things that need to be really thought out are one, prioritization of issues. And how are you going to pursue those issues given the constraints that I just mentioned? And that's going to require real forethought and planning about who will staff this committee and not just in terms of the members, but also the advisors, the lawyers, the consultants, et cetera, who are going to be helping pursue these investigations. Uh, another aspect uh, with respect to beyond personnel is not only how you prioritize issues, but what issues are actually going to resonate and how do you expose them to the American people given the inherent secrecy that's involved? Thomas Massey, when he was talking about potentially becoming a member of this committee, noted that much of the work is going to be done in a skiff, that is in secret. What, what this committee unearths has to be open to the public, and you know that the intelligence community is going to be leaking all sorts of unfavorable things to the media, not just the IC, but of course the Democrat members as well, to try to undermine the committee. So it's really imperative up front that it defines success, that it prioritizes the issue that, the, that it's going to pursue, and that it's very careful about the personnel that are selected. What would success look like? To my mind, it would be a handful of things. One, expose the full size, scope, and nature of the most egregious of civil rights violations that these agencies have engaged in. Two, provide a form of justice, in a sense, in a forum for those who have been victimized by the national security apparatus to publicly testify, because if they're not going to get justice, at least they can get some catharsis in that, and the American people can understand the wages of a corrupted deep state. Then beyond that, uh, fully exposing, of course, not only the wrongdoing, but holding the feet to the fire of these agencies to actually punish those who engaged in malfeasance, and of course, proposing laws and ultimately gaining public support for laws that will radically restructure our national security apparatus so that it cannot act tyrannically in targeting more than half the country. So with that, that's kind of my broad 30,000 foot overview. I'm curious as to your thoughts as to kind of the promises and perils associated with this committee. Well, I, it, it's very good, obviously, that one of the numerous concessions that were extracted from Chip Roy and his allies was this this promise to go down this road. It's something that has been a recurring theme of this podcast for probably since the day we launched this podcast now. Uh, certainly, Ben has been on top of the, the Russia the Russia collusion delusion, as Roger Kimball calls it. Uh, you've been on top of this more than probably anyone uh, in the right of center punditry space, maybe other than Lee Smith himself. So, it, it, you know, it's very good that we're going down this road here. You know, I, the thing that I think that we have to understand, you know, I think back actually to Darren Beatty's speech at NACON 3 back, back in Miami in September, and he was talking about kind of, um, you know, being a nationalist uh, at, a, at a time when the intelligence communities are, are so arrayed against the interests um, of American nationalism, of American nationalists, of American patriots, frankly, there. And it, it, it's, it's an unsustainable tension. And it's it's very important that conservatives who traditionally speaking have been the party of the intelligence community, have been the party of the federal law enforcement apparatus. I mean, you know, Sean Hannity to this day wears the CIA lapel pin on his Fox News program every night. So it's important that House Republicans are taking this affirmative step of, of recognizing because, you know, back in the day, obviously, you know, even as recently to a large extent as kind of the Edward Snowden saga going back in, in 2013, you know, I, 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 even at that time, and, and I'll be very honest with you, I, I have mixed thoughts, I would say, on Snowden to this day, although my my stance on Snowden has, frankly, moderated a lot over the years. I, I was very hardline against him when it first came out. Now I'm 
little more torn now, now that I've seen how so many of these programs have been used. But at the time in 2013, I think most of kind of the leading, you know, uh, proponents of, of, of IC reform, transparency, privacy were coming from the political left. So the fact that it's not coming from the political right is just a huge paradigm shift, frankly. And given what we have seen on just an empirical level from the CIA and the FBI, I think it is long overdue and it makes me quite happy. Do the ladies have any word on this? I, I was going to say, I'm in a standoff with Inez, but I couldn't get my mute. Uh, I yeah, couldn't unmute fast enough. <laughs> um, no, I'll, I'll, I'll just quickly add, I mean, I think it's a, if this is done right, um, you know, we talked on uh, my my colleague, Ryan Grimm, my co-host Ryan Grimm and I today interviewed Ro Khanna and Ryan pressed Ro Khanna on whether he would join the committee. Um, and Ro Khanna said, you know, Probably not, because I would want to have assurances that it's not going to be, I think he said something about like a, a Hunter Biden, uh, like political grandstanding type thing. And you know what? I, I actually think that's advice well worth taking from Republicans, just because this is such an important issue. Um, this is such a, a huge 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 topic this is not we're, we're not investigating one single incident we're we're investigating um, this massive powerful apparatus of the government um, that has in a bipartisan basis to the point where you have reporters like matt taibbi um people from matt taibbi to lee smith uh diving into this and really trying to to understand the full scope of what's happened um i actually think you know, doing something sober and serious, the media is never going to give a Republican committee the benefit of the doubt. Um, but to to model off of the church committee, I love that that language has been used by Ben and others, even Kevin McCarthy himself, because uh, a, a serious, sober, substantive uh, dive into this that can bridge the gap between Republicans and Democrats. Um, if you can pull that off, I know it's not easy and that's asking a lot, but if there's a way to do it, if there's a pathway to, to have a, a real church committee in 2023, it's, it is is man it is deeply deeply needed yeah i couldn't agree with emily more uh th this problem is systemic uh, by the way i think ilhan omar is uh citing that, that this is a positive consequence of the of the rule change so there's some horseshoe effect happening here but um yeah i mean it, this is a systemic problem uh it's it's the most the problem is biggest uh, in in those um, agencies that have direct power to spy on and otherwise screw with the lives of the American people, and that's in our intelligence communities and law enforcement community, law enforcement communities. But it is broader than that, right? Um, this is not an exclusive problem to our intelligence communities. It's just hit finally even these. Um, and I, I think that the reason for the reversal is just so obvious. I mean, uh, the 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 way that Josh talked about it, right? The way that conservatives thought about the FBI and CIA. Um, 10, 20 years ago. I mean, the, the reason's obvious, right? That this revolution has hit all of the institutions and weaponized them for the left. It's, you know, it's a pure self-interest reversal, but there's nothing sort of wrong with that on our end. These, these um, agencies are coming after American citizens, uh, and we should take that extremely seriously for all the reasons that Ben has laid out week after week after week uh, um, on, this, on this podcast, which is the, uh, a double standard in, in justice. Uh, really just, just very quickly destroys uh, political community. Um, one final thing, of course, uh, I think it was Adam Schiff who is now saying that Republicans wanted to fund the police, which is just a, a particularly juicy, hilarious bit of cope on his part. So um, I, I enjoyed that. But yes, I, I, I wholly agree. My, I guess I'm 100% on board with what Emily said, that the best way to do this would actually be to take it very seriously. Now, 
um, if, if that means investigating Hunter Biden, uh, that might be part of, of what's going on, but we should always keep our eye on the larger picture and not just on this one instance, um, or even just the instance of the raid at Mar-a-Lago or any of these other instances, we should point out that this is systematic and that's why it's so dangerous. Yeah. And the media um, love shiny objects and they would love to focus on all of the distractions more than anything else. But I do think there's a real risk. Um, one thing we saw in the speakership battle, although it was kind of reined in, is the, the goofball caucus um, you know, being useful idiots for the media to to beat the drum. Um, if you're if you're using these as PR stunts, uh, something like a new church committee um, or the the motion to vacate, if you're using that as an opportunity for public relations, um, it's it's going to undermine everything. And so there's there's some of this has to be done very carefully. Um, but I'll I'll go here to Joe Biden's border trip this week. I'm calling it a border trip, but he actually really spent more time in Mexico. Uh, he met with AMLO. Um, he went to El Paso. And it was uh, pretty much went as uh, exactly as you would expect it to go. Uh, it's worth noting that there were record numbers of crossings in October, November, and December. I believe from what we know, about 2.76 million uh, crossings over the course of 2022, an astounding number that blows records out of the water. It's an emergency if it were under a Republican president um, or if it were happening on this scope in a cause that uh, Democrats actually care about. This would be wall to wall every single day headlines constantly because what you're seeing in El Paso um, is is human uh, carnage in the streets, uh, people sleeping in the streets. It was all cleaned up for Joe Biden's uh, visit, just like Union Station here in D.C. was uh, when he gave a, a nice little speech there uh, late last year. Um, but they cleaned up El Paso. He didn't speak to a migrant in El Paso. He went to a respite center and sources told the media, well, it just so happened. It was just an honest to goodness coincidence. There were no migrants there that day. They just hadn't come in. Uh, just a remarkable excuse uh, to not talk to migrants in El Paso. Uh, unbelievable. But he also uh, coincided, the trip coincided with a rollout of announcements and changes in his border policy. So for instance, he is going to be ramping up um, expulsions of people who crossed illegally from certain countries um, and then also creating pathways, though, for people from some of those same countries uh, to make asylum claims. And it's really not a revamping of our asylum policy. I think some of it is genuinely helpful. I think some of it is actually going in the right direction. Um, but you can do this until you're blue in the face. And if you don't actually overhaul the asylum system, we will still continue to see um, high levels of uh, despair, um, humanitarian crises uh, at the border and in these various border cities on a daily basis. Um, to some extent, the United States is never going to be able to completely eliminate that because we're a place that people will literally die to get into. Um, and so that's that's never something you can completely eliminate, but we can do a much better job of, of mitigating it. And one of those ways is by obviously overhauling our asylum system and making um, asylum available uh, to people who who desperately really need it. I mean, some of the people that are getting hurt by our broken asylum system right now are people who should have easy, legitimate claims to asylum, people from Venezuela and Cuba um, who have crossed illegally and may now be sent back under Title 42 or other measures. Um, they should easily be able to claim asylum. That is a, a point of pride for the American people is how they have treated Cuban refugees over the years. Um, but right now, because of the, the knotted up system 
Um, you have so many false asylum claims. That's what draws people up here. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention before tossing it open to the group is Todd Benson, Bensman, one of the best beat reporters on the immigration beat, had a great report this week about how the UN, which is funded by us, is actually funding debit cards and vouchers in southern Mexico um, for people to come up through Central America, go north, um, and and wait in our border cities like Reynosa. Um, so so as we put more money into border patrol. We are undermining the money by giving it to the UN for these types of purposes. And it's just an outrageous cycle of uh, disaster. So with that, I toss it open to the group. Yeah, I mean, this is this is obviously one of the worst instances of or worst indications of the deep dysfunction of this country that is just papered over by wealth and the illusion of a kind of quasi normalcy. Um, you know, we have to have this final hour decision from the Supreme Court and then this like bill that's rammed through to keep any lid on our open border problem, even to the extent that Democratic mayors were complaining about it, right, um, and declaring it an emergency. And just today, the FAA has to ground all flights like it's 9-11, right, because they're screwing it up so bad, right? Um, Wells Fargo, the bank, is resurrecting redlining, uh, this time for uh white neighborhoods. Uh, that's maybe something to touch on in the <laughs> in the final thoughts. But um, I just see all of this like very deep, uh, crazy things that are happening that are just papered over uh, by essentially, um, I think, primarily people who just do not want to see how deep the division and the dysfunction is in this country. And, and I'll close with a final thought, which is, you know, if it's fascist to want to have a border, um, eventually, Right. Uh, eventually, if you call everybody who wants to have a border uh, fascist, eventually fascists will be the only people who want to protect the border. And that will sound normal to most people. Um, so I, I really think that this is, you know, in itself is such an important issue in terms of you, know, you can't be a country without a border. You can't have this sort of gaping hole on the on the southern part of the border where there's no security, no rule of law um, and, and endlessly uh, dump that problem on on initially on the people who live there and then eventually uh, on the entire country um which by the way this this uh horrible omnibus package that was was shoved through one of the many things in there is additional financial help for uh, a bunch of liberal sanctuary cities to deal with the influx of migrants from our borders so yeah i, I even though as, as important as the issue is itself i see it uh as even worse a a, a deep sign of decline and dysfunction uh that we just pretend is business as usual so i'm happy that Emily give a shout out to Tom, excuse me, to Todd Benzman, who was really one of the unsung heroes of conservative investigative journalism over the past probably 15, 20 years, honestly. I did, Todd lives in Texas. I I, I want to say that he was actually kind of like the guy who broke the Holy Land Foundation trial back in like 2007, which was kind of the largest domestic terror financing case in United States history. So Todd is a huge unsung hero. I think it was Daniel Horowitz who first kind of opened my eyes to him a number of years ago. He does fantastic work, and he's been all over the immigration, the cartels trafficking for years now. So, um, you know, I strongly encourage the listeners and viewers of this show to go ahead and check out Todd's work. One thing that, or one headline, I should say, that stood out to me this week was that Jared Polis in, in Colorado has apparently announced his, his intention to bus migrants, um, you know, to Washington, D.C., New York City. Very, very interesting. I mean, when you say, and Jared Paulus, just to kind of clarify here, is a very prominent um, elected Democrat of what is increasingly a bright blue state, the state of Colorado. 
So very interesting now that you're not just seeing folks like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis who are getting into kind of the busing migrants game, but there is a prominent big blue state where a governor who potentially has 2024 or 2028 presidential ambitions, but nonetheless, he is choosing to kind of do the same thing. He has spoken quite openly about, you know, the crisis at the southern border. So that to me was a very, very important headline. Um, to, uh, on the merits of, of the border issue itself, I, I, I mean, I don't really know what to say, honestly, that has not been said time and time again. It, it's just such a tragedy. And it, 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 the fact that the wealthiest country in the history of the world cannot secure its own border with a, you know, a failing narco state, which is what Mexico is in its current form to our south, the country that put a man on the moon that invented the internet. I mean, you know, whatever you want to say that we can't just build this freaking wall is it has nothing to do whatsoever with technology or funding or or the finances. It, it is a pure, pure, pure lack of willpower. You know, as the saying goes, decline is a choice. And in this case, a, a wide, wide gaping open border is a choice that our political elites are making. Unfortunately, we the people are the ones who bear the repercussions of that choice. Well, and since you mentioned the wall, uh, worth noting that at the Three Amigos Summit, there's a quote from Mexico's president, Lopez Obrador, where he says, J Joe Biden is the first president in a very long time that has not built even one meter of wall. We thank you for that. What a remark. We're number one. What a remarkable quote that is coming from Obrador. And, you know, my kind of snarky take on this is borders are bigoted. So why is Joe Biden going down there and promoting bigotry? Uh, I would love actually him to be questioned just on that sort of cognitive dissonance that exists on their side. But I also think there is a question, a political question of why did does he feel a need to actually even go on a Potemkin visit down there? Uh, it, is, is it that devastating a position ultimately they think politically going into 2024? Is this just a rubber stamping exercise that they felt has to be done? Is it because of the likes of a Jared Polis? If you've lost Jared Polis, then maybe you do have a serious problem among Democrats. And obviously there's been you know, outspoken criticism from the likes of Eric Adams and I think Muriel Bowser as well in DC and in other blue enclaves as well, because they're having to deal with the consequences of the very problems that they all support, endorse and promote. So you know, to that end, it, it strikes me as very interesting, the timing of this, the the why. And, and maybe I'll talk about this in, in our parting shots in just a second, but similarly, the timing of the drop of the Biden papers on the first working business day after a Republican speaker has been selected. I think there could be some interesting uh, tea leaves to be read through on that as well. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and transition to final thoughts. Who wants to start us off? So I guess I'll go first. I mean, I, I said at the beginning that I would return to my trip, and I, I, I guess I guess I might as well do that. So there are there are two quick things uh, from a from a political perspective that I I guess I'll flag that I kind of had discussions on over the course of this trip. One thing that the so Israel has a new government. Uh, Netanyahu is back in power. They I, I guess it was actually while I was there. They, they the Knesset, their parliament, formally ratified this new coalition. And one of the one of the allegedly controversial, but really not particularly controversial things that, that the new government is trying to do is pass this judicial reform package that would that would effectively tame the power of the Israeli Supreme Court, which all the usual critics, you know, Human Rights Watch, 
and, and all those folks are saying is like an assault on democracy is, you know, is Israel going the way of authoritarian hungry? I mean, you know, the, the listeners of this podcast know how these headlines go at this point. The Israeli Supreme Court, it's worth bearing in mind, is one of, if not the single most radically out of control courts in the entire Western world. So what happened in it was in the 1990s, there was a there was a justice who basically arrogated unprecedented power. They have the ability to strike down whatever they want for any reason at any time whatsoever for policy reasons. There, the Israeli Supreme Court is even able to they're even able to veto the government's picks for cabinet positions, for minister of justice, for minister of whatever, for literally no other reason other than they feel like it. So it's a wild, wild um, situation over there. And the fact that they're they're taking some basic powers to tame it in um, is a good thing. Uh, Newsweek published a good good op-ed on this from a a law professor by the name of Avi Bell. So I encourage you guys to go ahead and check that out. One other tidbit, so I mentioned I went to the UAE as well there. Um, I, I I was personally blown away by what I saw in the UAE. I'm not sure if any of the three of you guys have, have been to Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Uh, it, it's really cool, um, and not just Dubai, which is you know it, 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 properly and you know gets a lot of the attention. It's ridiculously flashy and all the money and the Burj Khalifa, where I saw New Year's Eve the fireworks. It's, it's all crazy. But like Abu Dhabi itself, the capital, you know, I mean the Grand Mosque, the Imperial Palace there, it's just stunning. I mean, honestly, the palace in Abu Dhabi, I mean, I think back to like maybe like Versailles in France, which I was at 13 years ago. I mean, like it's hard to compare, obviously, very different style, but a similar sense of kind of just over overwhelming. The geopolitical thing about my trip to the UAE that I will highlight is I spent a solid hour and a half, two hours with a very plugged in local um, Emirati guy whose name I will um, you know, respect and, and, and not name him there. But we're, we're kind of talking about the Abraham Accords because the, U- the UAE has very much emerged as the face of the Abraham Accords. They have, they, they have really promoted kind of this Israeli-Arab reconciliation, probably more so than any of the other signees to the Accords. We're talking about whether it will expand. The million-dollar question, of course, is will Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman end up joining the Accords there? And you know what I heard over and over again from uh, my friends there, uh, who again I will I will uh, leave nameless, is that it's just highly unlikely to happen under President Joe Biden for the very simple reason that he continues to flirt with Iran, which is the country that these countries are all these Arab countries are all terrified of. And there is this kind of, I think, understanding that the Abraham Accords peace deals will will probably not expand beyond their current form unless the United States stops flirting with the Iranian regime, trying to get this JCPOA package back together and all of that. So that was sobering, but you know, also worth bearing in mind, I think, from a domestic perspective as well. Well, let me just say, Josh, you may leave that individual nameless, but I guarantee you our intelligence community knows full well who you're meeting with. <laughs> so- uh, and on that note, I did want to read a couple of endorsements, the two best endorsements that I've seen thus far of the Weaponization Committee. Uh, the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler, said, and I quote, the GOP is launching a new version of the Un-American Activities Committee designed to inject extremist politics into our justice system and shield the MAGA movement from the legal consequences of their actions. It undermines our democracy and it threatens our safety and security. And then Jim McGovern of Massachusetts said, on investigating this weaponization, that it's, quote, about attacking law enforcement. It's about going after people, destroying people's careers and lives, undermining the DOJ and defunding the police. The MAGA extremist fringe will use it to push QAnon. I don't think you could get more strong ringing endorsements than those words from Jerry Nadler and McGovern. And I will say, if this committee does what it 
claims to want to achieve, then every member will be smeared and maligned to an infinitely worse degree, probably, than a Devin Nunes was when he chaired the House Intelligence Committee. And they'll probably face a lot worse than the surveillance that we now know existed of Cash Patel, who was one of Devin Nunes's chief investigators, who we've just found out was being spied on by the DOJ slash FBI at, during the very time when he was looking into the DOJ and FBI's malfeasance with respect to Russiagate slash Spygate. Th these members and the other staffers on this committee, I expect to be under total assault, and it's already happened since before the committee is even convened. Uh, so let's hope that it follows through and the attacks grow infinitely more unhinged, but they need to be steel-spined in the face of the onslaught against them. I, I think I'll cabin my remarks on the Biden papers till next week. Maybe there'll be further revelations about them. Have a few theories on that, but I'll leave that as a teaser for next week. Yeah, um, my favorite revelation about that whole episode so far is that Biden was getting paid a million dollars basically to not teach any classes. And so uh, that that's just another nice little window into the cushy lives of, of uh, ex-politicians when they leave office. But um, I, I also kind of earmarked this this Wells Fargo announcement saying they're going to be pulling back out of the mortgage market, except for um, their pre-existing customers and uh, minority um, majority neighborhoods, right? So this looks very much like reverse redlining. Um, of course, nobody uh, called it that except some folks on Twitter, uh, but definitely something worth keeping an eye on. There will probably be a lawsuit over that uh, based on the precedents set uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s about redlining. Um, and the other thing I want to note, which is, I think, uh, something that we're going to unfortunately be seeing um, and previewing this for the, the coming months and years, uh, there, there appears to be a, a major change in the drug uh, and opiate crisis in America. There is a new uh, drug. Uh, it's apparently a, a veterinary sedative of some kind. I'm going to try to pronounce it, but the name is hard to pronounce. Xylazine. Um, it is actually, phenyl is being cut with xylazine. So we no longer have heroin and other drugs being cut with phenyl. We have phenyl being cut with xylazine. Um, and it has some really, really horrible uh, consequences, as you can imagine. It also can't be reversed with Narcan, which is that anti-opiate that has been legitimately saving a lot of people's lives in America um, when they overdose on, on opiates. Apparently, it is um, you know already in 31 states and in Washington, D.C., and it's only increasing. This is coming from Dr. Ben Braddock on Twitter, um, grad at Graduated Ben, for those of you who want to follow him. But uh, I think it's a, probably a really uh, grim uh, preview of what, what we might see in the future. This, this is not a scheduled drug, by the way. So this is, you can have a ship from veterinary supply companies and dealers are using it to cut phenidol because apparently in combination with phenidol, it gives a more original heroin-like high. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, this is uh, going to be showing up in our hospitals and, and in cities like San Francisco on our streets. So uh, a grim preview. Well, on that note, um, the way that I started my story um, on what happened with Kevin McCarthy in the speakership battle last week is is by running down kind of a laundry list, a really depressing laundry list of um, 
negative metrics that show America in, de in decline, that show the sort of state of emergency. And I think one of those metrics has to be um, not just suicide rates, especially among teenagers, um, overdoses, addiction struggles, mental health struggles. Uh, the, the metrics across the board on those measures are terrible. Um, and it gets to exactly why like the, the political establishment, that the political establishment is shocked that populists on the right um, are pushed by their constituents and are representing, to borrow a phrase from the name of their body, um, those constituents that feel like their communities are in a state of emergency, that feel like their country is declined. That should surprise absolutely nobody in the political establishment. And yet they're eager to sort of uh, to, to frame the populists as extremists, as people who are radical and demanding too much of their government when they demand things like attention being paid to the border. Um, because do I think a wall is going to stop uh, the, the influx of fentanyl? Do I think it's going to stop uh, the pre-chemicals coming over from China and then being mixed up by cartels in these labs? No. Um, but of course, forcing uh, a conversation about how border security outside of a wall, for instance, um, the wall is important because it sort of nudges people into particular ports of entry as opposed to crossing anywhere they want. And it's easier for us to deal with the um, situation in that sense. Uh, but uh, that's why, because these things have gotten so bad in ways that Inez just laid bare and described in a, a painful and frightening way, because we will lose kids to this. We will lose people to this and people will lose if, if they don't, if their lives don't end because of this, they will lose chunks of their lives. They will lose marriages. The, the wreckage will be incredible. They're losing it every single day. Um, if we don't deal with this and uh, we just let the, the government continue on the omnibus schedule as usual and have no disruption to the dysfunction um, here in Washington, D.C., then again, decline is a choice. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're, it's it's only a good thing. This this chaos and dysfunction, uh, perhaps you could call it the lesser of two evils. It, it's only a good thing. You can't leave dysfunction with no dysfunction. There has to be um, a disruption of the status quo in Washington, D.C., because the status quo isn't working. So on that note, uh, thanks so much for listening to another edition of NatCon Squad. On behalf of Ben, Inez, and Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.